Well, it's, it's always a privilege to get up and realize that the worship team has just sung your sermon. So, so amen. Um, they, the, the, the worship team here does an amazing job of um, exalting the word and the, the preaching of the word in their ministry. And for that, I am deeply thankful. Deeply thankful, too, to have uh, Rob Craig back in the saddle after four months of sabbatical and uh, commissioning missionaries and doing all that he does for us here at North Wake. Welcome back, Rob. Well, I'd like you to open your Bibles up today to Matthew chapter 4. It is a passage that I've had a chance to teach a number of years ago, so if you've been at North Wake more than about seven or eight years, this will be a good memory exercise for you. Um, but like the Apostle Paul said, I am, it is no trouble to me to teach you the same things, and I trust it will be a safeguard for your souls in the process. So let me start by asking you if you recognize what this is. It may be kind of hard for you guys to see. Let me uh, throw a picture of it up on the screen. You put a little peanut butter in the back of that thing, and you put it in just the right right place, and you got yourself a mouse, okay? This is a, uh, it's a mouse trap, and at our house, what happens next is he gets carried back to the end of the property, and he's dropped in a very cold creek, and he swims across to the other side, banished from our property forever, okay? Um, or, or you could take him to your sister's room, and, uh, and that would be a really bad idea. There's a spiritual principle in that is anything that brings you momentary joy followed by great wrath, it's a bad idea, okay? So you might not want to go there. But if if you're a mouse and you encounter one of these traps, there's a series of questions you want to ask. First of all, what's the bait, okay? It's It's a meal of peanut butter in this case. Second question gets a lot more important. What's at stake? In this case, you might be evicted from your warm house and go for a very cold swim. And if it's a conventional trap, life itself is at stake. Third question you want to ask, how will I respond? What am I going to do about this opportunity that's come my way? Will the little furball take the bait? And yes, they do. I sent about five of them on icy swims just last month at my house, but... We don't talk about that because I think some of the ladies in my house might be here this morning, so we don't talk about that much. Um, This is not a lesson on mousetraps. This is a lesson on temptation. And today we have an extraordinary opportunity to look in on Christ's temptation in Matthew 4, and I want to ask those same three questions as we walk through his temptations. What's the bait? What's at stake? How does he respond? But we, we pick up our story today in Matthew 4. And if you want to open your Bibles there, I'll lead us in prayer and we'll ask God's favor on this time. God, teach us. Give us teachable hearts and uh, hands and feet that are quick to obey. May this safeguard us and strengthen us as we follow you in a temptation-riddled world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you back up two verses from the beginning of Matthew 4, we'll look at what we saw last week, that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit 
of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, immediately following the baptism and this pronouncement of God's pleasure on his beloved Son, our story begins. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, up by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So our focus today in chapter 4 is on what happens at the back end of those 40 days. But it's interesting what Luke has to say about those 40 days. In his account of this, in Luke chapter 4, he says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So it may very well be that it's, the temptations did not start just with the ones we're recounting today, that what, what we're looking into today, the three temptations that we encounter today, follow 40 days of intense spiritual struggle between Christ and the devil himself. What I, want, what I want to make sure you don't miss, though, the reason I read those verses from chapter 3 is that this season of temptation is at God's directing. Okay? The Spirit led him in the wilderness to be tempted. And, and it follows immediately on God's direct uh, declaration of his love for his son. So, he says, I love you. You're my beloved son. I'm pleased with you. And then he leads him into temptation. Okay. So if you are tempted, it does not mean that God does not love you. If you are tempted, it does not mean that you are not in God's will for you. Okay. Matter of fact, I would almost be more concerned if there was no temptation, no spiritual opposition to the life that you are living than the fact that there is temptation. But these three temptations that we are looking at um, have been recorded in detail for our good. They are intended to show us, first and foremost, who Jesus is, to, to let us admire and love Christ even more, and then follow him as the sinless Son of God. Matt Woodley says that in Matthew 4, these 11 verses, we see Jesus' deep solidarity with us, on two fronts. First, Jesus stepped into Israel's story. As the children of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years and failed, so Jesus faced 40 days and nights of testing and prevailed. Secondly, he says, as Adam and Eve faced one temptation in paradise and failed, Jesus faced three temptations in a howling wasteland and prevailed. In both the story of Israel and that of Adam and Eve, humans wanted autonomy because of their failure to trust the Father's goodness and love. In contrast, Jesus trusted his Father and thus recapitulated or, or took up and transformed in his own life the broken stories of Israel, of all humanity, and of us personally. He lived the life we were called to live and thus achieved the mission of God's Son. So we're looking in through a remarkable window into a really extraordinary encounter. Jesus, the Son of God, and Satan, kind of mano y mano in the desert. Okay. That's what we get to read about 
and think about today. As we do, think about these three questions as we go through Christ's temptation. What's the bait that Satan is enticing him with? What's at stake in this temptation? And how will he respond? How will Christ respond? So that we can seek to learn who he is as well as learn from his example. So here's the first temptation. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's the bait? Okay. Stones turned to bread. Remember those first couple of verses. Satan is attacking Jesus at his greatest point of need, his perceived weakness. After fasting for 40 days, Jesus has not eaten for 40 days. He is starving. Literally, he is starving to death. Most of you skip a meal and and it threatens your very existence. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. And Satan comes to him at that moment, at the moment of his greatest need. That's probably been your experience, that when you are most vulnerable, you are most likely to be tempted. You know, if you're on a diet, every route you take takes you right past good berries. It's just inevitable. That's how temptation works. This is by design, okay? I'm not putting broccoli in this thing, okay? I'm putting peanut butter in here because they like it and they're hungry, okay? Satan shows you no mercy when you are suffering. When you're at your most vulnerable, he will tempt you. What's at stake in Jesus' first temptation? On the face of it, it doesn't seem like much. He's going to do a little miracle. He's going to turn some rocks into bread. It's about like turning water into wine. He's going to do that not not much farther in his ministry. It's not a big deal, it seems. But Satan is a master at wrapping evil in a cloak of reasonableness. You know, if there was ever a time that would justify a miraculous feeding, it would be now when Jesus is starving. Jesus, um, as God's son, it's assumed here that he's God's son. It's not being contested that he's God's son. Satan is trying to get him to, to misuse that posture. But shouldn't he be able, as God's son, to be able to use his power to meet his own basic needs? Um, Satan is trying to introduce an element of selfish disobedience into Christ's relationship with his father. That is always the target, the ultimate target of your temptation. It is your relationship with your father. Who was it, after all, who had led him into the desert? It was the spirit. See, this this temptation, this season of testing, is part of the father's good plan for the preparation of his son for public ministry. Satan offers him a shortcut. 
Just a simple little way to meet his greatest need. Since you're God's son, Satan would say, and he loves you and he's pleased with you, surely it would be okay if he used your power to provide some bread when you're starving. Isn't that reasonable? Yet what hangs in the balance is Jesus' willingness to be totally obedient to the Father's plan. Would he be willing to endure more suffering? Would he be willing to maintain his obedience? Would he trust in the Father's provision or would he seek some other way to have his needs met? See, if Jesus uses his power to do an end around suffering, then his mission is scuttled because Jesus came to suffer for us in our place. And so Satan is trying to get him to do an end around on his, the core of his very mission. Though the bait may seem small and insignificant, the stakes are inevitably higher than they seem. That's the way temptation always works. It's really not about the peanut butter. It's about something far greater that's at stake. Satan is targeting Jesus' relationship with his father. How will Jesus respond? Well, if you look at verse 4, he says these three words, it is written, that marks each of Jesus' response. It is written. And then each time he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Um, Jesus responds with Scripture. But it's not for Jesus like some lucky rabbit's foot. If he holds his Bible up, Satan backs away. You know, we had a lady that used to live in our neighborhood, and she was a professing Christian. And she used to go out and walk in our neighborhood, and she would... She was bothered by a couple of the neighborhood children. They would uh, circle her on their bikes and ride too close to her or, or something in her mind. They were menacing her. These kids were probably like 8 and 10. Okay. And so what she took it upon herself to do was to quote scripture at them when they would terrorize her on their bicycles. Okay, now, this is problematic for a couple of reasons. One, these are the very neighbors that she is commanded by Christ to love. And secondly, Scripture is not some kind of magic charm that if you say it, you know, you're, you're then evil proof, okay? If you just quote Scripture, then you're invulnerable. You know, Satan will flee if you just quote Scripture. That's not how Jesus is using the Bible here. It's not a lucky rabbit's foot. It's not an amulet. It's not some kind of charm. When Jesus recites the Scriptures, it is a life-ordering confession, it's a set of boundaries that he has assented to, that he has made an irrevocable commitment not to violate. It is something that Jesus believes, not just something he says. His statement is not so much something that he's enforcing on Satan as it is something that is governing his own life. It's as though he is saying, it is written and I will abide by it. Every word, Jesus says, and I will abide by all of it, he is saying. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And by citing this reference, Jesus is saying that the provision of God is enough for him. He will not deviate from it even to meet legitimate needs like food when he's starving. Matt Woodley says, by giving into this temptation, Jesus would have used his identity as the son 
in a way that was inconsistent with the Father's mission for his earthly life. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel demanded bread right away without trusting the Father's love. As a result, they died in the wilderness. But Jesus responded to this temptation by refusing to demand bread on his terms, choosing instead to rely on his Father and live according to his Father's will. And as we'll see at the end of our passage, the Father met his needs. See, where the first Israel failed, Jesus now, as the true Israel, the true Son, succeeded. He passed the test. He'll be faithful and accomplish the mission, whatever suffering it would ask of him. And his suffering, as, as we know, would be great. See, Jesus is saying there's something that matters more to him than food when he is starving. That is loving and obeying the Father. Remember back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4 says, Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules I'm teaching you and do them that you may live. That means really live, actually live. That's where life is found. It is in our relationship with God in walking in obedience to Him. And so Jesus' response ends this temptation. With His declaration of faithfulness to God's Word, the temptation is over. But, but Satan does not relent. There's a second temptation. The devil Then took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now it's interesting. First Satan attacks Jesus' weak spot, his vulnerability. He's hungry. Now he he flips it around. He attacks an area of strength for Jesus, his understanding of Scripture. And that's the other thing that you'll see. Satan will often attack you at your strength, perhaps seeking to find some chink in your armor there. Um, And Satan uses Scripture um, to suit his purposes. Be very wary of people who quote Bible verses to you but don't believe the Bible. For instance, when your college buddies say, hey man, let's go out drinking. Even the Bible says a little wine's good for your stomach. Okay, The flag, the warning flag should go up when someone quotes Scripture to you and they don't believe it. Okay. What's the bait here? Well, from high atop the temple in Jerusalem, Satan challenges Jesus to throw himself down in order to set up some kind of angelic rescue. Why would he do that? What does Satan hope to gain from inducing Jesus to do this? Um, Why would Jesus even be tempted to do it? Maybe this story will help you think about it. Imagine a dad whose son turns 16, and he rebuilds and restores for his 16-year-old son a car, say, a 68 Camaro, okay? And... um, Guys, you can confess your lust at the response time at the close of the service. You know, just smash that idol right now. Bring it down. Um, so his dad gives him, holds up the keys to this car, and he tells him, he says, son, this car's fast. But you've got to trust me about that and honor me by honoring the speed limit. And the son says, oh, yeah, dad, I'll do it. 
throws him the keys. His buddies come over, and they go for a drive in the car. And they're driving around town, 35 in a 35. 45 in a 45. And his buddies start egging him on, saying, Man, I thought you said this car would run. Your dad built you a dog. And they keep after him and keep after him until finally he goes out in the back roads of Franklin County and he proves to them that his dad's word was good. And in doing so, he dishonors his dad by his disobedience. It's almost like that here. Like Satan is trying to appeal to some kind of pride in Jesus as God's chosen son. It's like he's saying, so you're God's son. Prove it. Just prove it. Um, Temptation loves to shift our focus from pleasing God to impressing someone else. Um, And the ante is upped here. It's gone from loaf of bread meeting basic needs to some kind of spectacular, um, miraculous rescue. What's at stake this time? What's at stake in this temptation? Again, it centers around his identity as God's son. So you're God's son. Would he trust his father's promised care? Or would he needlessly put that promise to the test at Satan's request? See, trust in the father's word is at stake here. The temptation is pressing doubts on Jesus about the father's father's care in some way. Tempting him to prove that his father does really care for him. So the stakes are high because, again, it's an attack against Jesus' relationship with his Father. Ultimately, that's where temptation always attacks. Temptation is not so much offering you something as it is robbing you of something very, very precious, your relationship with your Father. How does Jesus respond? Once again, he cites Scripture. He says, again, it is written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Jesus says that trusting God is out of bounds. Or not trusting God is out of bounds. He will not cross that line. Jesus would choose to trust God's promises as sufficient and not demand some fresh proof of God's loving care. And again, Christ's resolute commitment to that ends the temptation. And again, he is stepping into Israel's history. And where Israel failed and demanded bread in the wilderness, Jesus now succeeds and doesn't succumb to that temptation for bread. Matt Woodley again says, prior to the third temptation in this story, Matthew tells us that the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. He says that is the way of Satan, tempting us to go up high, to set our own agenda and get our own needs met without ever going down. But throughout the gospel, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus down before he goes up, down into the incarnation, down into Mary's womb, down into the stable, down into the bloody mess at the slaughter of the innocents, down into the waters of baptism, down into the presence of human disease and demonic attack. For Jesus, the way up, he says, is always down. 
He arrives at the resurrection life only by walking into and through the crucifixion. So Jesus descends into the ordinary, the broken, and even the grotesque condition of his fallen world. Satan wants him to rise above it all. And then he says, but Jesus, like a strong man lifting a boulder, must stoop low, getting his body underneath the dangerous load of sin and suffering, even allowing the load to crush him as he finally rises to lift the boulder out of the mud. And Jesus will, sh- will face this same shape temptation again from the cross. Philip Yancey describes it. He says, nailed to the cross, Jesus would hear the last temptation repeated as a taunt. A criminal scoffs, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Spectators will take up the cry. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. But there was no rescue, there was no miracle, no easy, painless path. He says, for Jesus to save others, quite simply, he could not save himself. He must suffer and die. So Jesus would not take shortcuts to meet his basic needs, to attract glory. He would not cut short the suffering his mission would require. And the tempter has one last-ditch effort, starting in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministry to him. What's the bait? Well, all the glory and splendor of all the kingdoms of the earth. Satan has upped the ante once more. We've gone from bread to an angelic rescue. Now to the the kingdoms of the earth are on the table. He's saying, if you're God's son, shouldn't your needs be met? Shouldn't you have bread when you're hungry? Shouldn't you have everyone acknowledging your glory by some miraculous rescue? Shouldn't you have all the nations bowing down to you? Satan is baiting Jesus with everything he has to offer. If it's really even his to offer. Now Satan is called the prince of this world. And the whole world is said to be under his control. So there might be some substance to this offer. But Jesus himself would say that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. So do you really think that he would would come follow through with this offer, even if he could? Um, Temptation, like the tempter, always make promises. But should you really trust in this one to deliver on his promises? Um, Satan is not tempting you for your good. Never is temptation for your good. I am not putting peanut butter in here because I like mice. I am trying to evict them, okay? What the tempter is offering is exactly what Jesus will fully possess one day anyway. There's coming a time, and it's sooner than it ever has been, when Christ will return and initiate a chain of events that will lead to His reign and rule over all the nations fully, 
but Satan's offering for him to have that without two things that none of us like, okay? Waiting and suffering. It's a shortcut, essentially. He's saying, it can be yours, Jesus, without waiting, without all the humility, without all the suffering, without the cross. Power and glory can be yours now if you'll bow down and worship me. So what really is at stake here? Well, the most significant thing, even more significant than all the kingdoms of the world, is Christ's allegiance, the Son's allegiance to His Father. That's what's at stake. Whom will He serve? With whom will He align Himself? Whom will He worship? And This is really the bottom line in all three of these temptations. It is the bottom line in every temptation. Will you be loyal to the Father or will you follow the tempter? That's always what's at stake in all of our temptations. How does Jesus respond? Be gone, Satan, for it is written. The third time, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Again, it's Scripture. Again, it's from Deuteronomy, this time from chapter 6. Jesus is binding Himself to allegiance to the Father, and Satan is finished tempting. Luke says he's finished until an opportune time. Christ has prevailed. Satan has fled by means of Jesus' clear grasp and unbending commitment to the Word of God. He is our sinless Savior. Philip Yancey reflects on these three temptations and he says, When I do that, I see that Satan proposed an enticing improvement. He tempted Jesus toward the good parts of being human without the bad to savor the taste of bread without being subject to the fixed rules of hunger and of agriculture, to confront risk with no real danger, to enjoy fame and power without the prospect of painful rejection. In short, to wear a crown but not a cross. That's really what's at stake. In every temptation, if you think about it, it was something that Jesus could have had, maybe should have had as the Son of God, and would have someday. For instance, with that bread, he could have done that miracle. That's not a problem for Jesus. And maybe he should have. You know, it's the son, it's within his rights to do that. And he would have that one day. Matter of fact, right at the end of our story, did you notice that angels came and were ministering to him? That idea of ministering is often assorted with serving meals. The angels came and gave him exactly what Satan was trying to tempt him to take prematurely. He just had to wait and to suffer longer. You know, that angelic rescue, that glorious angelic rescue where Christ was to come down and then be rescued and brought up. And I think of, I think of the cross as his great coming down in suffering. And he did not avoid it, but he went through it. And then what do you see at that empty tomb where the stone had been rolled away? Angels proclaiming his exaltation. He got it, but he had to go through suffering, not around it. Um, The kingdoms of the world. 
Scripture is clear. One day he'll return and all the nations will bow before him. Every temptation was something that Jesus could have, maybe should have, and one day would have after he had suffered in submission to the Father. Satan just tempted him with this slight deviation towards self and away from a long-suffering obedience. But this, because of Jesus' love for the Father and his commitment to the Word, he would not do. He would not do that. Back in 2002, there's a little town in Florida made national news. Uh, it's called Inglis, Florida. It's a little town just north of Tampa. It's like 1,400 people. And they made national news because they banned Satan from their city limits. Okay? The, the mayor actually made this proclamation. Be it known from this day forward that Satan, ruler of darkness, giver of evil, destroyer of what is good and just, is not now nor ever again will be a part of this town of Inglis. Satan is hereby declared powerless, no longer ruling over nor influencing our citizens. That was what the official proclamation made. And they posted it in hollowed out posts around town. So if you come out on the highway, uh, you would see the words, repent, um, let's see, repent, receive, and resist with that proclamation dropped down inside the hollow post. So if you live in Inglis, Florida, you're good, Okay. But we don't live in English, Florida. Hardly anybody does. And so we need to think about one more temptation, a fourth temptation. We need to think about your temptation. So let's walk through those three questions with your temptation. What is the bait that Satan is tempting you with? What is the bait that he is enticing you with? Is it a relationship? Is it a position or a possession? Is it just a harmless fantasy or some little shortcut, a shortcut, a way out where there would be no more waiting or no more suffering? Do you know what the bait is that you're being tempted with? What's at stake in this? It might seem small and insignificant, To you, just like a little loaf of bread or a little bit of peanut butter. But it's a whole lot more. Does it involve your integrity? Does it involve your fidelity or your purity? Does it involve your marriage? See, everything we've seen today reveals that there's a lot more at stake even than those things. Because when we align ourselves with the tempter, we do that at the price of communion with the Father. The target is always your relationship with God. The stakes are very high. Our sins, they will separate us from our God. And we are so unaware of it You know, when I talk about sin sometimes, I describe it as an escalator, okay? You take one step, one step, and the next thing you know, you're all the way down. And you think, how did I get here? I just took one step. It's a lot like that little trap. 
You poke open the door and you go in and you hear it swing shut behind you and then you think, oh no, what have I just done? Sin will take you places you do not want to go. Satan does not use catch and release traps. He's a liar and a murderer. He is playing for keeps. He is after your relationship with God. So, third, maybe most important question. How are you going to respond to that? Will you be able to cite the word with relevance and clarity and precision and faith? Will it be for you an uncompromisable perimeter that safeguards your very soul? Will it be your refuge, your strong tower, your great fortress? Dale Bruner says that in all three temptations, Jesus gets his victory by using the common source accessible to the rest of us, Holy Scripture. Jesus does not resort to a direct line to heaven to get help from God. Instead, he uses the same source we have, the Scriptures. Can you, in your area of greatest vulnerability and temptation, precisely quote for me one Scripture that will safeguard your souls, that you are committed to. Can you do that? It's interesting, there's, there's some parallels that are drawn between Jesus and his temptation and Eve and her temptation. Eve's problem seemed to be she didn't understand precisely what God had said. And so Satan says, has God really said? And she wasn't able to recall precisely what God had said, and she was not committed to what she did understand. But with Jesus, we see that he precisely understood the Father's teaching, and he was wholly committed to it. Which of those two better describes you? Jesus, he's our victor here. He emerges as our sinless Savior. Where Israel failed, where we fail, Jesus does not fail. That's why he is our sinless Savior. He lived the life we could not live to give us the life we always wanted but could not grasp, life with God. And in your time of testing, you can trust in him. He is your victor. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, in a room full of sinners like this, we so need what it is that you've said to us today. We need this grace and mercy and strength to protect us. And so I pray especially for those who who have fallen headlong into temptation and feel desperately even hopefully trapped there, that you have made a way out by your word, but especially by the Savior who won the victory in this battle in the desert, but ultimately on that cross. There's a grace greater than our sin. And I pray, God, that you would help us to run to that, 
we'd seek refuge there, and we'd seek protection by our, our allegiance, our knowledge, and our allegiance to your word. God, may it be so. May we be marked this week by, our, by your word. May we learn new verses this week in your word that will safeguard our very souls um, as we seek to live the life that you've called us to, to honor you, to not get pulled off mission. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The worship team is going to come and lead us in a time of response. This is intended to be a time of response.